we are already in a period of climate change. It's already begun. We see it in the kind of extreme weather that we've been experiencing around the world in recent months. What will climate change look like in the future? No need for a crystal ball. According to this futurist who spent decades predicting things that might happen, climate change is already well underway. Massive forest fires, huge floods, big storms. These are all symptoms of climate change. Peter Schwartz, chief futures officer at Salesforce, tells Radio Davos we can expect much more of the same and worse if we do nothing to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Weather extremes will be ever more extreme and more common. So we'll have more severe storms, more floods, more droughts. And that's the result of not doing very much effective about it. Frankly, that's where we're going right now. That is the scenario we're headed toward. But there are other scenarios, ones where we pull back from the brink. Peter Schwartz sets out what it will take to rebalance the climate. And so call it a century from now, century and a half, we will have gotten the Earth back on a much more benign climate trajectory. He's built future scenarios for the Pentagon and for Hollywood movies that may themselves have changed the course of global events. Here was an early warning scenario that led people to rethink literally how the system worked. So we actually got Ronald Reagan thinking a bit. Radio Davos is the podcast on the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. And in this, the first of a series of special episodes looking at climate change as we head into COP26, we also hear from the man who will represent the United States at that climate summit, John Kerry. We are behind, dangerously behind. There's too much rhetoric, too much easy 2050 net zero. What I really am focused on is what is going to happen in the next 10 years. This is the decisive decade. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy with a look into a future shaped by climate change. We're redesigning how we live to be much, much more environmentally benign. This is Radio Davos. Welcome to the first in our series of climate change specials. Later in this show, I'll be speaking to a futurist who's drawn up scenarios for what the world will look like depending on how far and how fast the global climate changes and what humanity does about it. Before that, John Kerry, the former US Secretary of State and now President Biden's special climate envoy, popped into the World Economic Forum in Geneva this week to talk about COP26 and to speak with leaders of business about how they can make massive emissions cuts not decades into the future, but now. In a televised session with the heads of cement maker Holcim and shipping line Maersk, Kerry said he hoped a host of big companies would, by COP26, commit to big climate action that would halve emissions by the end of this decade. The key is to accelerate everything. We are behind. We're dangerously behind. And when I say that, that's not John Kerry or the US speaking, or it's, it's the scientists. I mean, this entire challenge is defined by arithmetic and physics. We know the numbers, we know what's happening, we have to be guided by that. And so we must accelerate. In order to achieve net zero by 2050, we have to reduce by about 50% between 2020 and 2030. So the race is on now to get that reduction. And to do that, I am told by the experts, 50% of the reductions we need to get will come from technologies that are not yet at scale. How do we get those technologies at scale? It's exactly what we're doing here at the World Economic Forum today. We're trying to you know, increase the demand for green products. And companies like Holson and others are joining together here to talk this through. We're not announcing it to the world today but we're trying to build this towards the launch in Glasgow. And if we can get enough companies to share the vision 
that if they will move as first movers, we're creating a first movers coalition. If they will come together and move to buy certain green products, whether it's cement or steel or in the trucking business or shipping, there are key tough sectors of our economies where we can accelerate demand and that will move the entire process. John Kerry also spoke about international cooperation on climate change, the importance of China and India in keeping global warming to under 1.5 degrees Celsius. And he admitted there'd been way too much talk and not enough action. There's too much rhetoric. There's too much easy 2050 net zero. What I really am focused on is what is going to happen in the next 10 years. This is the decisive decade. And if we can't get China to do enough in the course of this decade, that will kill 1.5. It will be gone uh, completely. It's already a hard, I mean, I'm not pretending it's an easy target. It's a very tough target, but it is doable. And what we have laid out as a plan together with Japan, Canada, the EU, and uh, UK, and, and if we can get India's deployment of renewable energy, we have a very large, we have a majority percentage of global GDP locked into trying to achieve the 1.5. That's a big deal. What we need are the others to come on board as fast as possible. And so are big companies doing more than just blah, blah and setting distant goals that might never be realized. Speaking with John Kerry was Soren Sku, the chief executive of the world's biggest container shipping line, Maersk. He said his company was converting its fleet to run on renewable fuels. But he's come across what he calls a chicken and egg problem. What needs to come first, green energy for ships or ships that can use green energy. In the next five years, we can probably retrofit engines to burn these fuels and not just rely on building new ships. We are trying to solve the chicken and the egg situation, though, because today there are nobody producing green fuels for shipping because no ships are using it. And, and at the same time, nobody's building ships with, that use green fuel because you cannot buy the fuel. But, but we, have, we have made a step forward. We have ordered what will eventually become 12 ships. So I need to find 500,000 tons of green fuel by 2025. And that's a way of creating a, a market. And, and we're getting lots of calls who would like us like like to help help solve this problem so so I, i'm a very big believer in the concept of creating demand and a market and as the secretary also pointed out while these fuels will be very expensive in their own right maybe three times of what we're paying today when we look at the cost to the end consumer the end product it will be negligible and and i i certainly believe that the world can afford to to decarbonize over the next 20 years. Soren Sku of Maersk also said that the main driver of emissions reductions in shipping will come from the companies that ship their goods demanding climate neutral transport. Luckily, he said, the demand is there and growing from companies who have pledged to reduce emissions, including in what is known as their scope three emissions. The emissions from products that come throughout their lifespan, including the transportation stage. More than half of our top 200 customers have already set science-based targets for all three scopes. Largest customers, they don't make anything like Amazon, like Walmart, like the Home Depot. They're buying things. And, and for them to deliver on their scope three emission targets, of course, they will have to buy carbon neutral logistics services to achieve their targets. And, and that's why we see this demand already.
Sorisku of Maersk. Also talking with John Kerry was the head of cement maker Holsim, Jan Jenisch. The cement and concrete sector accounts for 7% of all global carbon emissions because of the chemical reaction that turns limestone into cement and also from the energy used to produce the high temperatures needed to make it. Like steel, cement is considered a hard-to-abate industry, but it is possible to reduce its carbon footprint. We have, of course, the challenge, same as steel or glass. We transform minerals at a temperature somewhere around uh, 1400 degrees Celsius. And we have to find ways to lower the temperature, use alternative raw material, and ultimately to do carbon capture and, and reuse the carbon, which is a valuable raw material. Like shipping lines, steel producers will be incentivized to cut emissions if their customers demand carbon neutral steel. But incentives to act on climate change also come from closer to home, as Jan Jenisch and John Kerry agreed. We have 70,000 employees with their families behind and they want our company to be part of the solution. And I have it in my own home. I have two young children and they tell me, Papa, so you work for a cement company. What are you going to do about it? Because now the education and the awareness is on a different level with the people. And that's, that, that's very pretty positive. good. That's a pretty good jab yeah. when you can't, you know, it's at the dining room table, it's in the kitchen, you can't yeah. get away. You can hear that whole discussion on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues, and you can watch it on the World Economic Forum website. I'll put links to those on our podcast club on Facebook. Now to our main interview. Peter Schwartz is a futurist and the senior vice president of strategic planning at the software company Salesforce, where he's drawn up scenarios of how the world might look under different degrees of climate change. Stay to the end of this one because you'll hear how his work on the Hollywood movie War Games caught the eye of the President of the United States and may have helped prevent the Cold War getting very hot indeed. But I started by asking Peter Schwartz to set out his climate change scenarios. I've actually been doing scenario planning for almost 50 years. Uh, started back in 1972 and my first climate project was actually 1977 looking at uh, uh, the dynamics of climate there. And uh, there are really three very different plausible scenarios for the future of climate change. Uh, we are already in a period of climate change. It's already begun. We see it in the kind of extreme weather that we've been experiencing around the world in recent months. You know, massive forest fires, huge floods, big storms, etc. These are all symptoms of uh, climate change. So the first scenario is that we are not very effective in dealing with it uh, and preventing it. And what we see is that the current pattern continues to grow. That is, we will see gradually average temperatures rising, but more importantly, we'll see significant variation around the trend. Weather extremes will be ever more extreme and more common. So we'll have more severe storms, more floods, more droughts, uh, more winter freezes that will be more extreme. Because while the trend is going up, on average, it still swings around that trend. It can actually get colder at times as well. So it's... This is, so this is the first of three scenarios right. that you're going to talk about. Scenario us number through. one is, is basically continued change uh, and massive weather extremes. That's number one. Can you, can you, before we get on to two and three, how easy is it to quantify these um, extreme weather events? You know, it, will you be able to say California was going to get one of these every five years or every year? Uh, well, it, it, unfortunately, the reality is every year. That is that in, on average, every year we'll have more extremes, more fires, more droughts, etc., more storms. Uh, so it's simply more on average every year and 
uh, more extreme so that the droughts will be longer or deeper, the storms more severe and so on. Uh, look what's just happened in the Gulf uh, of Mexico in the United States. Just within a, a few weeks, we've had two massive storms hit uh, Louisiana, right? Devastating. Uh, one right on top of the other. That's what we mean by it. So it, you can't literally quantify it, but what it'll be is more every year and more extreme every year. That's number one. That's, that's the first scenario. And that's the result of not doing very much effective about it. Frankly, that's where we're going right now. That is the scenario we're headed toward. So that call it a century from now, the average temperature will have gone up in centigrade. Call it about three degrees centigrade. Call it uh, almost six degrees Fahrenheit. Really bad, catastrophic scenario. The second scenario is where that many of the mitigation measures that we're doing now actually begin to work. That is that we reduce the emissions of human industry and human society. We reduce the amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases like methane that we're putting into the atmosphere. And gradually, and we, and we do a pretty good job of it, we slow the rate of climate change enough that we can adapt. That is, that the world can adapt more effectively to it. So we have a bit less extreme and a little less climb in average temperature. And so call this a kind of adaptability scenario, where in effect we're good enough to slow it down, but we still have significant climate change. Uh, so that's not a great scenario, but it's not catastrophic. And you call that adaptability because humanity could adapt and live with that. It yeah. would be a much harder place to live on planet Earth, but it's just about manageable. Yeah, call that more like about a one and a half to two degrees centigrade rise and more like a four degrees Fahrenheit rise. So meaningful, but nevertheless one where there is scope for adaptation. The third scenario and the best case is where we actually go negative on greenhouse gases, that over the next 20 or 30 years, we begin to figure out how to radically reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. We do a great job of, say, reforestation of the planet. That's the kind of thing over a couple of decades can make a big difference, right? So those kinds of things. And we radically reduce our emissions. We move to electric vehicles. We radically reduce uh, the amount of carbon dioxide from coal and other fossil fuel burning and so on. And then we go negative in greenhouse gases. That's the best case scenario. That's where we actually draw down the CO2 and we begin to actually reduce the impact of uh, climate change. And so call it a century from now, century and a half, we will have gotten the earth back on a much more benign climate trajectory. The climate changes all the time, but we don't mind if it changes slowly over many, many centuries. What we don't like is if it changes really fast in undesirable directions over a short period of time. The climate will evolve, but it will be the natural, normal, many century cycles of climate change. We'll hear more from Peter in a minute, but this seemed like the perfect time to drop in a voice from the front lines of the fight against climate change. As part of our COP26 coverage, we've asked people around the world to give us a flavour of how climate change is affecting them, or to tell us their priorities for the climate summit and beyond. Joshua Amponsem in Ghana runs an environmental group called the Green Africa Youth Organization. Like Peter Schwartz, he says we need to adapt to the climate change that we just can't stop, but also to fight like crazy to slash the emissions that could make things a whole lot worse. Hello, my name is Joshua Amponsem. I am a climate advocate and I work with young people in the context of climate change, particularly on adaptation and resilience. We need young people to have that security that the world that is ahead of them is going to be safe and for that we need to adapt and we need to be resilient secondly it is also important that 
the finance is given to countries that are feeling the impact, impact the most to be able to build resilient infrastructure and solutions. But all of this is not going to be possible if fundamentally we do not just reduce our emissions. We need to cut down our emissions. And that is very, very significantly important, particularly for developed countries who are, first of all, not committing to the $100 billion commitment as to the Paris Agreement. But we need them to commit that. We need them to reduce their emissions and we need them to invest in resilient and adaptation in developing countries and countries that are feeling the impact the most. Thank you. Joshua Ampensem in Ghana. And we'll have more 60-second climate voices on Radio Davos as we continue our coverage ahead of and through COP26. Now back to the futurist Peter Schwartz, who's created scenarios for our possible climate futures. I asked Peter, what are the variables? What are the things that can change that could shift us from one scenario to another? The, the biggest thing is uh, how much uh, we are impacting the climate, right? The climate does change, but it changes slowly over a very long period of time. So how do we impact the climate? Well, number one is all the stuff that we're putting into the atmosphere. And so everything that we can do to radically reduce the use of fossil fuels and other uh, sources of greenhouse gases, that, that being, say, gas, natural gas production and agriculture. Those are the three really big ones we have to deal with burning fossil fuels, the emissions from natural gas productions, and the emissions from agriculture. If we can make a big impact on all three of those, then we have a really huge effect on the climate. On the first, on fossil fuels, you know, the the things to do are obvious. The one that is controversial is nuclear power, right? I I believe that nuclear power is a good idea for dealing with, because climate change is much worse than any of the risks of nuclear. Uh, But that's a very controversial position. Not everybody shares that. And the truth is that wind and solar are getting much, much, much better. So then electrifying everything, say vehicles, becomes an important way to move from burning gasoline to being able to use solar power for your car. I have an electric car in my garage. It's powered by solar on my roof that goes into batteries that recharges my car, right? I use no fossil fuels at all uh, as a result. And and that's what we need to be doing. That is literally the pattern uh, that we need to be moving to. We need to uh, radically improve the production, how we produce natural gas. That tends to leak a lot of natural gas, and that's a very potent uh, greenhouse gas. But that's doable. You know, if the Russians produced gas the way the Norwegians did, we'd have a much less uh, of an impact. Their pipelines leak where the uh, Norwegians don't. That's the kind of thing. So that's an easily doable thing. The harder one is, is agriculture, right? We produce a lot of natural gas in a variety of agriculture, particularly beef production. So how, what do we need to do to change how we produce beef? You either eat less or what we feed the cattle or the genetics of that cattle. And both of those are being worked on. Cattle feed that reduce methane production and genetic modification of cattle so they produce less. That's what we're looking for. Those are the three really big ones if we can deal with it. And who is listening to your scenarios? Who, who are you aiming this work at? Presumably Salesforce, the company you work for, but who else is listening? Well, of course, Salesforce has virtually every major company in the world as a customer and many of the governments of the world as customers. So we aim to help our customers do a much better job of first understanding their climate impact and second, figuring out what to do with it. So 
You know, we have something called Sustainability Cloud, whose job it is is to help our customers measure their uh, climate impact and then actually identify and uh, uh, implement solutions for it. Because different companies have different kinds of impacts. If you're Cargill, you're one thing. If you're United Airlines, you're another, right? Both have large impacts. But how you solve United's problems is very different than you solve Cargill. Both of those are our customers. We're working with both of those in that respect. And then governments around the world. We work with the government of Singapore, the UK government, and many US government on a lot of these issues. Uh, for example, uh, we've helped launch something called the Trillion Tree Initiative, 1T.org, which we work with the World Economic Forum on. Uh, and there, we've, the US government has recently signed on to help sponsor planting a trillion trees to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So those kinds of things. In your scenarios, do you look at policies as well? Are there policies that could be put into place that would impact the scenarios? Absolutely. A policy makes a, that is in many ways the single biggest variable. What governments do on the one hand that, for example, set emission regulations for power plants, for vehicles, for industry and so on, for homes that set efficiency standards for everything from refrigerators to television sets and so on. Uh, so policy makes a huge difference. Import policy, what we do to uh, import fuels from around the world and so on. Uh, the tariffs, look, I take a very simple example. Why has solar power gotten so cheap because China got into it in a very big way, right? They started producing massive volumes of, uh, uh, of solar panels, which was really great. That lowered the cost dramatically. I mean, it's classic uh, economics, right? Uh, and so high volume, low cost. And suddenly solar became cheap. It dropped by 80%. Massive improvement, right? So, But then uh, the previous U.S. administration put tariffs on that solar power, right, to try and assure that the solar panels coming in the United States. Bad policy, right? We want to keep solar power cheap in America. Uh, and if that means importing Chinese solar panels, great. Have Americans compete to lower the price here as well. That's what you want to do, not put tariffs on it. So it's a, a simple example of what kind of policy leverage you can have. How are companies responding to these scenarios? Do you think they're taking this seriously yet? Well, I think specifically, of course, there's a lot of variability. But what I'm impressed with is the magnitude and universality of the response. Look, I, I think, for example, the, the events of the last few months uh, in the climate have been really kind of shocking to many places. places. The catastrophic flooding in Germany, for example, just to take that. You know, if you were a German company and you were doubtful about the need to change and deal with climate change, those floods kind of were highly convincing. If you've seen the hurricanes and firestorms in America, Boy, that's hard to deny. So the, the, the point is very simply this. It's almost universal. Uh, there's almost no major company in the world that does not now take climate change seriously. There are a few probably holdouts here and there that maybe for political reasons or one sort or another. But everybody in the energy industry, everybody in the automobile industry, everybody in the materials industry, everybody in the mining industry, everybody in agriculture, the industries that have a very big environmental impact, they're all beginning to turn in better directions. Maybe not as far as we would like, maybe not as fast, but nevertheless, there's almost no denial any left anymore. The COP that's come up is COP26. That means there have yeah. only been 25 of them and they don't happen more than once a year. Ever have we left it too late, do you think? Well, in one sense, yes. We needed to change about 100 years ago, uh, to be honest, if we wanted to avoid where we are today. Uh, I actually represented Salesforce at the last COP in Paris uh, in 2015. 
Uh, and what I was impressed with at the time was that, look, this is such a huge challenge and the science is difficult to, uh, to you know, grasp altogether. Uh, and, you know, we're dealing with complex systems in the climate. So and where you intervene and how you intervene and what the interests are, these are not easy questions. So when a whole planet has to sh change direction, that doesn't happen overnight. Look, one of the best pieces of advice I got as a young man was if it doesn't take 50 years, it isn't worth doing. You know, uh, this is a big problem, not a little problem. And it takes a decade or more to kind of redirect the world in better direction. So I'm actually fairly optimistic. I'm not troubled by the fact that it takes a while for us to come to agreement, to act, implement the solutions. Uh, do I wish it were faster and easier? Of course. But that's not how the real world works. Let me ask you about, so you mentioned the price of solar panels coming from China. And I think it surprised pretty much everyone the speed at which um, solar and wind energy became so much cheaper, so much adopted around the world. I don't think many people saw that coming. I wonder if you've foreseen now, are there other things that are just over the horizon that maybe you think might be coming that other people might not have seen yet? Well, some are very obvious. The, the, the cost of batteries, for example, which makes a huge difference for renewable, right? Uh, cheaper, better batteries, both for the grid, for storing energy in the grid and in our vehicles, at our homes and so on. I've got seven power walls out there that are today storing energy, but they're not cheap. Uh, they're going to come down dramatically in cost and improve in performance. As the materials that we use change them. Today we use lithium ion, but there are new formulations coming along that will be cheaper, less environmental impact, and produce much, uh, have a much better storage capacity. So that's one of the big things that is just beginning to happen. The next big one in energy is going to be fuel cells. That is the ability to use a variety of sources of gas, mostly hydrogen, power a fuel cell for vehicles, for buildings, for communities, and so on. Uh, that's a way of taking, say, hydrogen and turning it into electricity. And if you use solar power to create hydrogen, use that hydrogen to put in a vehicle, and suddenly you've got a, a bus running around producing zero pollution. So that's another one that's coming along down the road. We just had a major breakthrough in fusion power the ability to use giant lasers to compress hydrogen uh, and produce fusion. That just happened at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, the course of this summer. Massive success. Now that's still decades away from actually producing a useful product. But if we could produce fusion energy, that's the same energy that's in the sun, basically. That's solar, ultimate solar power, if you will. That is, we take hydrogen, we fuse it, produces helium, but releases vast amounts of non-radioactive energy we can do that, that's a huge gain. And we've just had a major breakthrough in that. On the other side, I think that, you know, I, I alluded to something, and that is how we uh, produce cattle around the world and, and other ruminants that produce methane in their digestion. Uh, frankly, genetically modified cattle are coming. Uh, we are going to have cattle that produce much less natural gas. We're going to have uh, feeds for them that produce much less natural gas. So that's another big one that I think is coming along. Uh, one that, uh, you know, uh, I think is a huge reinvention is how we build our homes. 
right? Today, uh, we are very inefficient in the design of buildings, in the sprawl of cities, and so on. Uh, I think we are going to move toward much more uh, walk-friendly cities, cities that uh, make it easier to get around. Uh, You know, frankly, many of the older European cities were like that, right? where you had good transit, trolleys and buses and easy to walk. I think that's where we're headed in the future. We're redesigning how we live to be much, much more environmentally benign. You've really walked us through some very interesting possible scenarios. Could I just ask you one or two questions about what it's like being a futurist sure. or a futurologist? I thought a futurist, it was futurist. a German yeah, art movement. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> you leave off the ology. You know, I, I did all my research. I looked up your Wikipedia page and... Um, it says you, you did uh, climate change scenarios for the Pentagon. So Correct. The, the world's militaries are looking at climate change. I mean, well, what, why do you think that is? Well, look, when, when the world gets disrupted, there are often national security threats. Famines, just to take a very real example. Extreme storms that disrupt societies. Uh, really benign thing. If you're the U.S. Navy, you've got ships in harbor. Those ships have to go out under bridges. If the sea rises four or five feet, suddenly your ship can't get out to sea. That's a real concern, right? Uh, so uh, th- there are uh, massive climate refugee problems. Uh, can you imagine what will happen to Bangladesh when the sea begins to rise? So the need to be supportive of the global climate refugees. So these are big security issues that the Pentagon takes very seriously. Further down on your Wikipedia page, it says you, you've actually advised on certain movies. True. Um, Minority Report here. The, the one that interested me was War Games, one of my yes. favorite films. Oh, good. Um, which was a terrifying scenario. Uh, it came out in well, the mid-80s, I suppose, um, or early 80s maybe. Yes. Of, at the time when not many people were worrying about climate change and everyone was worrying about nuclear Armageddon, which is what that film is about. And the idea that it might be unstoppable in some ways. This kind of echoes, I'm sure teenagers of today feel similarly about climate change as my generation felt about nuclear war watching that. When a Hollywood scriptwriter or movie producer comes to you, and well, I mean, what, what do they say to you in terms of what can you help us with? Well, in that case, it was two writers, Larry Lasker and, and Walter Parks, came to me with an idea for a movie. Then we began to discuss it, and it evolved into what became War Games. It was originally a movie about a boy and a scientist. Uh, and I said, well, look, if you're a boy today, you're starting to play computer games. You're a kid hacker. you know." And the, the context is, in fact, nuclear war. That was in, You're exactly right. Those were the big issues that coming to power. And I'll tell you an interesting story. It's, it's, it, I, I, we only learned something quite recently. A, a book was recently published, and it, this is a great example of how scenarios work. A book was recently published uh, on the history of nuclear deterrence and how it all worked. And it turns out, unbeknownst to us as, as, as scriptwriters or even you know, anybody working on the film, uh, the film was shown to Ronald Reagan at the White House. It turns out that Larry Lasker's mother, Mary Lasker, was a very close friend of Ronald Reagan uh, and said, my boy Larry just made a great movie. You ought to show it at the White House. And so uh, Larry's mom got it shown at, to Ronald Reagan. And so R- Reagan watched it in the White House theater uh, with his military attache, the military advisor. And he turns to his advisor and says, oh, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, could this actually happen? And the advisor says to Reagan, Mr. President, you don't know. It's even worse than this. Now, I won't go into the details. It's all laid out in the book. But they realized that there were ways in which you could inadvertently by computer trigger a war. And it led to policy change in how the deterrence system actually worked. 
Uh, so it had a really quite remarkable, here was an early warning scenario that led people to rethink literally how the system worked. Now, truth is, that wasn't, we were aiming to entertain and make people, you know, think a bit. So we actually got Ronald Reagan thinking a bit. Wow. The power of fiction there. The, um, yes. And the yes. power of scenarios, I guess, and speculative fiction in, in a way, yes. I suppose that was. Yes. If people want to know more about your scenario planning tool and, and your thinking on climate change, where should they be looking? Well, I have a book called The Art of the Long View, which is all about scenario planning. Uh, the, uh, the, the study you mentioned for the Pentagon actually gives a pretty good picture of it, and it was reported in Fortune magazine in about 2004. It's available online. It's called The Pentagon's Climate Change Nightmare. If you look it up on Google, you'll find it. Uh, and that's a pretty good picture of what we think about climate change. Peter Schwartz of Salesforce, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I didn't know I was going to get a, a Hollywood showbiz anecdote as well. So that's an added bonus. Thanks so much for speaking to us on Radio Davos. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Peter Schwartz. Next week on Radio Davos, we'll be diving almost literally into one particular area of climate change, the ocean. To tell us about that, here's my colleague Alex Court, who's produced that episode. Hi, Alex. Why are we looking at the ocean next week? Well, Robin, the ocean has a massive impact on the Earth's climate and the effects of climate change on ocean temperatures, sea levels, wildlife and even us humans will be really significant. But the ocean also offers huge potential to slow down climate change. In that episode, we'll hear from the UN Special Envoy for the Ocean and take listeners deep into the Colombian mangrove swamps, where a restoration project is making sure plants can suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it potentially for centuries. Yeah, and we'll also hear from an endurance swimmer who's been taking dips in the Arctic for years and has noticed these waters warming up. That's right. His name is Lewis Pugh, and he tells us what it's like to swim amid the icebergs in nothing but his speedos. It's quite an interesting lesson. I bet it is. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Robin. And thanks to all our guests today, Salesforce futurist Peter Schwartz and environmentalist Joshua Amponson in Ghana. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Hugin Park and Anna Bruce Lockhart. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. Don't miss next week's COP26 special on the ocean. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.